Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from BearMarriage.com, where we like to talk about healthy, evidence-based biblical advice for your sex life and your marriage. And today, I have an amazing interview that I actually recorded last June with Lisa Swartz, the author of Stained Glass Ceilings. And I was hoping to play this earlier, and then just a bunch of things happened, and I kept delaying it because it got preempted. And I'm actually glad I did, because something happened in the last two weeks that actually pertains to this topic. So in this podcast, you're going to hear us talking about a study that Lisa did at two different seminaries, an egalitarian one, Asbury Seminary, and Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is run by Albert Moeller. Well, two weeks ago, it came out in the news that Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, along with the Southern Baptist Executive Committee and Lifeway, um, filed an amicus brief, which is like a legal filing um, in an, a case, a legal case that they were not a party to. So this had nothing to do with them um, in the state of Kentucky. So a woman named Samantha Killery has been involved in ongoing legal proceedings, and she's trying to get the right to sue the entity that she disclosed her father's sexual abuse of her when she was a child too, and the entity did nothing. And the Southern Baptist conglomerate, of which Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is a part, intervened in that proceeding to argue that the statute of limitations should not be lifted, and that this woman should not be entitled to justice, because it's very important that entities be protected. So even though the SBC has been saying that it cares about sexual abuse victims, it is actively behind the scenes, making sure that victims cannot get justice. And while there has been a lot of kerfuffle about this once it hit the news, the simple fact is that is what the convention has done. And, and I think that is the fruit of what Southern Baptist Theological Seminary stands for. And so <laughs> we're going to hear about that in today's podcast. Before we get started, just a bit of a shout out to our patrons who help me not get too upset when <laughs> things like this happen and I feel my blood boiling. They provide me with a safe space on Facebook where I can go and vent. Um, and it's just a wonderful group where we can get support from one another and pray for one another. And their money helps fund the research that we are doing and helps us just keep going every day. So if you want to join our patron for as little as $5 a month um, or more where you can get discounts on merch and lots of other things, you can find us at patreon.com slash bare marriage. And the link is also in the podcast notes. And without further ado, here is my interview with Lisa Swartz. I'm so thrilled to welcome onto my podcast, Lisa Weaver Swartz, who is a sociologist from Asbury University and has written an incredible book that I just loved called Stained Glass Ceilings, How Evangelicals Do Gender and Practice Power. Did I get that right, Lisa? You got it, Sheila. Yes. Well, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. It's such a treat to talk with you. Yeah. You know, I heard about your book on Twitter because Beth Allison Barr was raving about it. And I'm like, I need to read this. And so I read it, I, I got it and I read it on a plane ride all in one go. And I was just taking notes furiously. So it was, it was wonderful. I, um, I really appreciate it. So let me, let me just set this up. So what you, you you're a sociologist and yes. you do research and we do research, but we do them in kind of opposite ways, which complement each other so well. And I just love it because we're like the, let's get as many people as possible to answer a survey. And you're like, I'm going to sit down over coffee and I'm going to have in-depth talks with a bunch of people so we can find themes. And so tell us what you did for this book. 
Yes, I had coffee with a bunch of people. That was, that's, <laughs> that's my MO. Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I started out wanting to do kind of a deep dive into Christian institutions and community life. And so what I did uh, was I identified two influential seminaries within the evangelical world. One of them is uh, straightforwardly complementarian. It's Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, so fairly, fairly well known and fairly straightforward in, in terms of their complementarian theology, uh, male headship and in, in marriage and church life is very much um, celebrated and front and center there. So that was my first case study. And then the second community that I worked with was Asbury Theological Seminary, which I, I'll, I'll pause and clarify is a different institution uh, than the one I, I work at. They have they share a name and some um, some tradition uh, in the past, but they're, they're separate. So Asbury Theological Seminary is straightforwardly and, and very uh, publicly egalitarian in the sense that they have for, for a very long time, as, as Wesleyans tend to do, welcomed women into uh, ministerial leadership, encourage women to come and pursue MDivs, pursue ordination. Their, their campus pastor is a woman who is a phenomenal preacher. And so they're doing uh, a, a very intentional work of being and, and living out their egalitarian theology. So that's the contrast. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I did exactly what you said, had coffee with a number of, uh, of students at each place. It interviewed uh, not only students, but faculty and some administrators to get a sense for uh, really the cultural construction of this theology, because so much work has gone into the theologies, right, in both uh, Christian egalitarian and Christian complementarian groups. But I really wanted to understand kind of the the consequences for for the cultural uh, processes of the community how it works itself out in the lives of these these people who are preparing to be the next generation of leaders for for the evangelical church right so interesting now before we get started i know a question that all the listeners are going to be wondering is where was the revival <laughs> Of course, of course, that was on that was at the university where I teach it. Actually, it's it started just about 20 feet from my 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 classroom. And um, so I, I heard it go down. My office is right down the hall and we could have a whole nother conversation uh, about that one. <laughs> OK, so it wasn't at the place that you that you interviewed people. It was where you work. So just yes, want that clarified yes. right off the bat. OK, um, let me just state what I think is your thesis um, from the book and then. And then what I really want to focus on is the Southern Baptist one, because I have I, I pulled a bunch of quotes that I think are super interesting and I want I want to get your reaction to them. Um, but here's what you said. While women in both communities find creative ways to thrive, they often find it necessary to participate in their community's male centering if they wish to succeed in churchly spaces. And honestly, I found this so interesting, like you would expect that at the SBC seminary, right. I wouldn't have expected it at Asprey. And I thought that your analysis of that was really interesting. And uh, maybe we'll, I'll try to leave some time to focus on that at the end. But I, I really do want to focus on Southern. But, but what you were basically saying is just because it's egalitarian doesn't mean that women are going to thrive and are going to succeed in those spaces. Yeah, that was a bit of a surprise for me too, I guess. Um, you know, going into something like this as a social scientist, you don't quite know what you're going to find. But I think mm -hmm. there was, I mean, I have to confess, I think a naive part of me thought I was going to go in and see how bad complementarianism was for these Southern Baptist women and, and then be able to celebrate how important egalitarian theology was. 
Uh, and, and, you know, to some extent that is true, but as I really sat with what I was seeing, the patterns in how the women at Asbury were talking and describing their lives, their vocational trajectories, they just had this, um, this struggle that they they themselves struggled to put a name to they they had trouble identifying why they were insecure why they were they were struggling and so i really had to sit with what's what was really going on below the surface because they had this uh, this very empowering theology um which i think is is the thing that surprised me the most is that I, I thought I was writing a book about how important theology and, and religious ideas are. Um, but in the end, I think the the thesis statement that you summarized so well just sort of demonstrates that there's more that we need to identify than than just the theology, the the practices um, of community life, of, of a cultural reality are really making a difference in how um, men and women, but especially women are are experiencing their their callings and their spiritual lives. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us p- actually picks up on on a, a podcast I did at the end of the last season with Todd Corpy, which is just because you're egalitarian doesn't mean that there aren't still barriers for women. And I, mm. I, maybe I'll just get to it now because we're, we've already brought it up. But like what you're basically saying is that at Asprey, they celebrated the way that Jesus and Paul treated individual women and they celebrated the equality of, of women as individuals but they didn't look at the bigger picture things, which were still keeping many women from succeeding and were making it much harder for women to succeed. So things like housework, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. who's going to look after the kids if they're sick, you know, um, and just, and just the way that, that systems tend to value male voices over women. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that yeah. was really interesting. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think another way of saying that is that the this egalitarian theology that I think extends well beyond, you know, Asbury's the case study, but I think it is indicative of how a lot of American evangelicals as are, as we're moving, I think, in, in a lot of spaces toward more egalitarian practice. Uh, what what we tend to do is you know, sort of free women for ministry, right? This was the big mm-hmm. controversy in in the SBC, which um, I, we may t- talk about a bit later. The Southern Baptist Convention just had had this big conversation about sh- should women be allowed to be preaching and in ministry. And in egalitarian groups, you know, they say yes, which frees women to pursue these these roles, these these offices. But it doesn't attend to, does not free women. In other words, from the constraints and expectations of culture, like the godly womanhood expectations that mm-hmm. um, sort of code successful womanhood in in terms of being a wife and a mother and. Um, and all, all of the, you know, yes, the housework, mm-hmm. the the sociological language is the second shift, right? All this extra right. labor that, um, you know, the theology just doesn't attend to. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Okay. But I do, I do want to talk about Southern because I found some of your in, in, um, insights on Southern. So interesting. So here, let's, let, let me just jump right in to some theology. Okay. Um, which is the word gospel. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was fascinating. And so here's something that you wrote. In historic Christian tradition, gospel is most often employed as a reference to the ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, or to the four New Testament books that outline this biography. Southern's usage, however, extends much further. More than the good news proclaimed 2000 years ago, Southern's gospel dictates right living in the contemporary world. I thought that was fascinating. And I've seen this phenomenon too. When they talk mm-hmm. about they don't believe the gospel or they're a gospel believing church, they don't mean anything about Jesus's death or resurrection. They mean gender roles. Yeah. Yeah. 
I thought that was so interesting too. Just the 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 amount of times I heard the word gospel in so many different contexts, um, and it's not just gender roles. They're they're using it for this kind of holistic story that they tell about how humans should live, mm-hmm. and gender is of course an important part of that. But it's it's become this this word gospel is it's just so interesting that they're using it sort of as a tool to separate those who are you know in living inside this cultural framework that's very very western very american very you know 21st century um to separate that from everyone outside which includes a lot of christian groups right egalitarians catholics or a lot of global christians wouldn't uh wouldn't really fit into the way that they're using uh gospel language for for this pattern of human social life that you that you're right it, it, it's very much about this gendered hierarchy and the separation of of men and women so yeah the, the use of that word is really interesting um and especially because once you've got you know, gospel associated with a pattern, it's really hard to argue with, right? Because it's gospel, right? It's got, it's got the force of God's own authority behind it. And so it, it just sort of solidifies it as a part of the imperative of Christian life. I just find it so ironic though, because it's actually an anti-gospel because the whole point of the gospel is grace. And it's that we're, Mm. you know, we're freed of legalism and we have this relationship with Christ that is based on what Christ did for us. And they have turned gospel into the way of telling who's in and who's out based on what they do. Yeah. And I think, so I, I would agree with you, but to explain their framework, that's not how they see it. Uh, they <laughs> no, really, no. Right. And, and I think yeah. that, you know, they're, there's this understanding that, you know, life is hard. We live in, and I heard this multiple times too, we live in a Genesis three world, right? The world is fallen. And again, we're still talking theology, right? According to their theology, the original intention in the creation account is that there's this hierarchy, but it's intended that everyone flourish and that you don't have to be legalistic. And so the Mm -hmm. whole point of this complementarian gospel and in, you know, sort of quotes is to re revert, to re return to that and recover the hierarchy that is good for everyone. Right. Which I know sounds like a lot of, of semantics and I know, and, and again, this is, this is another reason why I think more than theology is, is necessary here because just, just saying something, just having a framework doesn't actually make it true. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is, this is the framework and it is a logically consistent framework that they have. And this is, this is what motivates them. Right. I, I thought when you, when you were talking about faith and I'd like to explain their faith and explain gospel, like, and, and you had a number of different interviews in the book with both people from Asprey and people from Southern. And, and you mentioned how often Southern would go back to Genesis and how Asprey tended to start in the gospels. Yeah. Yeah. And I found that fascinating, you know, that, that the life of Jesus, and you actually say here, wait, I, ha- I actually have another quote about this. Um, when you asked Um, the students at Southern about Jesus, you said this pervasive use of the word gospel, notwithstanding Jesus life and ministry are much less relevant than the creation account to Southern's gendered narrative, nor did students often cite his death and resurrection. Instead, they described Jesus's primary contribution to the story in terms of his relationship with the church illustrated metaphorically by new Testament authors as Christ's bride. 
Yes, yes. That the Bride of Christ imagery actually at both of the the seminaries was was pretty dominant. And in fact, you said a minute ago that Asbury starts with the Gospels. I actually would amend that to say they they really start with Acts. Um, okay. not, no one was really talking a whole lot about Jesus in in their kind of narrative of gender uh, outside this this metaphor of of Christ in the church, which I think is is really interesting. Wow. All right. Yeah. And then and then. Um... Okay, I have two other paragraphs that I found so insightful. You said this, for the men and women of Southern Seminary, male headship and gender polarization have become virtually indistinguishable from the good news of God's love for the world. Gender complementarianism stands on a high theological plane alongside God's sovereign authority and, and, and the incarnation of Jesus. And it is every bit as salient in the 21st century as it was in the book of Genesis. This is Southern's gendered gospel. These emphases, the centrality of Jesus, his interactions with women and the cultural barriers he lifted are noticeably absent from the gospel story that Southern students now narrate. In Jesus's place, Paul and the creational order take de facto primacy. I find that really scary. Mm. Well, and one, you know, we all choose to prioritize, right, parts of the scripture. And it is really interesting to see the convergences of the systematic theologies with the the more narratival storytelling that that Southern is using. And for me, I think that you say you find it scary. Why, why is that? I think, you know, I, I just find that when people make Jesus a lower priority, mm. I find like that I don't even recognize the faith sometimes. Mm. Because to me, like we have to interpret all of scripture through the lens of Jesus. He's the ultimate word of God. And yet when we, when we put all of this other stuff in his place, like I, I don't even understand how we got there. Yeah. And I think that is really important because you have to have something at the center of our understanding of, of the Bible and of the Christian faith, right? Because the Bible itself, it's an ancient text. It's, it's full of complexities and even apparent contradictions because it's, you know, it's not a cohesive whole. And so, you know, that's what, that's the work of a lot of these, these religious leaders and seminaries is to make sense of this ancient text. And what you're saying is that in, in, in many traditions, Christ is the center and everything must be interpreted through him, which actually is um, historically part of at least, at least portions of the Southern Baptist history and tradition too. Uh, but I do think we're seeing some of that that pivot and other uh, other notions, and, and maybe this notion of gospel in its new form is um, perhaps becoming that that pivot point uh, even more than than the the story of of, of Christ. Um, I I don't think that I don't think that anyone would acknowledge that because the the atoning work is of, of Jesus is still so central to Southern Baptists and to Southern Seminary. Um, but I think if if we would do a historical look over time at the emphasis that goes into um, 
just the amount of, of, of discourse and, and energy that goes into talking about complementarianism versus the energy and discourse that goes into uh, looking at, at the work of Jesus. It would be really interesting to see if we could see some shifts there. I, I suspect that we could. We need some historians to look into that, maybe. Yes. Hey, Beth. Um, and, and you know, as, as you were talking about Southern Seminary, you you talked about this quite a bit. You You gave the history of the seminary and how they used to actually have female professors who were egalitarian and and male professors and who male, were egalitarian. Yes, yes yeah yeah and there was a big yeah, purge. the story of southern yes the story of southern seminary is a very complicated one um and as as recently as the the 90s um it was a very different place where egalitarian theology uh, was was actually dominant. Uh, it was it was known for its stand on civil rights and for yes for in, empowering women to to ministry. Uh, and it's it intertwines with the story of the Southern Baptist Convention itself as it has experienced a a real rightward uh, turn with increased sort of emphasis on on religious leadership, um, kind of the the authority of the preachers instead of kind of congregational autonomy and the priesthood of the believer. Uh, so there's there's a whole set of of historical patterns and trajectories that are at work here that Southern Seminary itself is a part of. Um, but it was really interesting for me to learn that history and learn about some of the women that had been a part of the community. One of them, Diana Garland, uh, was a was just a, a wonderful presence. She was a part of the School of Social Work, which is a um, a, a field that has been historically dominated by by women uh, and and done some wonderful things and and those stories are are unfortunately kind of lost on the on the stu student body that I that I spoke with so um, yeah there's these these things are all rooted in history yeah it's so interesting um, I think as you were talking about how this gender polarization became part of the gospel you then looked at how students themselves interpreted this and lived it out. And you were talking about how you were interviewing one young man named Marcus. And you said like, he might value women. He might even admire women's abilities and spiritual maturity, but he also sees women as so different from himself that to minister to them might be next to impossible. Mm. The gospel story narrates this polarization as God's own design, a legacy of the differences between men and women initiated at creation. And so th this really means that men feel like they can't minister to women or that we're just such different creatures. Mm -hmm. Did you see this a lot in your interviews or can you comment on that? I did. I did. I think it was, that was one of the most explicit quotes that I have, which is why I used it in the book, but the sort of idea and this, this assumption that men and women are just opposite or categorically different. I saw all over the place. And I think that it, it emerges both as, as a cause and a consequence of the separation of men being funneled toward the pastorate, toward preaching, and women then being funneled toward women's ministry and family life, right? It's 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 all part of the same package. Um, but then, yeah, as a, as a consequence, I think both men and women start thinking of the other as as unintelligible even and and so women will get together and talk about how to understand their husbands and uh which which can be helpful certainly but because there's not a lot of spaces for women and men to interact and understand each other i think it sort of exacerbates the the differences um the perceived differences 
uh, in in their in their experiences in their in their lives and and because there also is such a caution um i think out of concern for sexual impropriety that that you know men especially men preparing for the pastor right with the billy graham rule don't be alone with a woman who's not your wife i think there's fear of even trying to understand for, for men of trying to understand women and perhaps for women too of trying um to understand men women's fear is is more that they will be uh maybe perceived as as seductresses right? Uh, right there's there's this fear and i have a couple of personal stories in in the book too of how men were just very cautious about making sure the door was open when i was in their offices one of them was kind of panicked he didn't know if he should close the door or not when i when i was standing in the doorway um they just don't have it's just not in their practice it's not in their in their communities uh, sort of habits to, to interact with each other relationally, which I found kind of concerning uh, because of the implications for what it means for working together and living together as as men and women in, in churchly spaces and community life. Yeah. Also, if these men are preparing to pastor, how are they going to pastor half their congregation if they don't understand them? Yeah, well, I think, and that's where the women's ministry comes in, right? In this mm-hmm. in this framework, men will do the preaching and the teaching, and that's a performative act. Um, but I think that in in some ways, you know, the the gifted women are, you know, they they don't expect to preach and teach and pastor, but they do expect to carry a lot of authority and a lot of responsibility in women's ministry. Uh, ministering to each other, creating women's Bible study groups, sort of play groups for for parents, for, for mothers um, and, and families. And so I, I think that in, in some ways, um, and so if I didn't I didn't study how this works itself out in, in congregational life. I'm, I'm sort of guessing based on, on what I saw in the community itself, but I, it seems like they are preparing sort of two different ministries, right? The 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 performative preaching ministry. Um, that is for everyone, done by men, and then separate ministries, men and women, um, but but more for women, right? There's there's mm-hmm. more need for nurture, and and there are some gifts in that that I, I found actually I was kind of surprised by how much the women of the community did benefit from having women centered spaces, um, but it it does continue that polarization and um, has for sure implications for congregational life. Yeah, because I think, and, and you make this point too, that that Southern celebrates androcentrism. So men being at the center, they don't try yes. to hide it, which I find like, you know, like everywhere else in society, they're trying to deny that it exists. They're saying, no, we don't center men or no, we don't think men are the main deal, but Southern actually celebrates that. Right, like, right. Which I find so weird. Like, and you said in an androcentric context, to be man is to be human, to be woman is to be other. Mm-hmm. And so I, I understand what you're saying, how women are in women's ministry. So that ministers to women and men are doing the performative, but if they're doing the performative and they don't feel like women are their main people they're preaching to, like Matt Chandler once said um, that he, he preaches to the men. Mm-hmm. It's not to the women. He preaches to the men. The women can learn at home and I'll find the clip and I'll, I'll put it in the podcast notes, but you know, that, that he feels called to preach to the men and Again, that's saying that half your congregation who's listening to you, they're not the center. Mm-hmm. In fact, more than half, because more than half of people in churches are females. So yeah, I find that yeah. really strange. Yeah, yeah. And that does open the door for ministries like Beth Moore, right? Mm-hmm. Who has made a mm-hmm. quite a quite a career and quite a space 
facilitating ministry to women. But but yes, it does. It, 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 I think, yeah, it, it is so surprising that, like you said, how we try so hard in other aspects of society not to center men, but they, they're embracing it in some ways. And and the argument is that this is the best way for both men and women to flourish. And I think they really believe that many of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't doubt that they do. I think, yeah, yeah, I think, I think that they do. Um, Yeah. They're just missing a lot. Okay. I I want to move on to what they say about marriage. Um, You talked about Southern Southern's take on marriage. And so here's what you said about a female student at Southern. Catherine, a student in the biblical counseling program, similarly relied on the language of sin and the fall to interpret her own inadequacies as a submissive wife. And she says this, I think that ultimately the conflict and the separation between humans relationship with God is a separation between man and woman and all human relationships. There's conflict and there's difficulty and there's sin and there's wrongdoing. The curse talks about how Eve will have pain and childbearing and the wife will want to overrule the husband and to, and to conflict against the husband. There will be conflict in that relationship. I totally know from personal experience, it is within me to want to say, no, you're doing it wrong all the time. But I think that I have to respect what the Lord has set. There's going to be sin. My husband's going to fail as a leader. He's going to fail because of sin. He's going to do things that are not right and he's going to offend me and there's going to be conflict and I'm going to offend him and I'm not going to follow him in the way that I should. So there's tension and it's just not an easy relationship. Yeah. And that's a great example of how, you know, I think that could have come from an egalitarian to that, that story, that experience. And the interpretation would have been the opposite in some ways, right? So I think, and I, I'm not sure in other places. That? What do you mean by so, that? So the struggle, right? There's a struggle for everyone. All of these women know that life is a struggle and know that Christian marriage is a struggle. Um, but this woman, Catherine, she's interpreting it in terms of, you know, the fall makes me want the power, right? And so that's why it's hard. Um, And an egalitarian would say, yes, of course, marriage is a struggle because we're we're both struggling um, against uh, patriarchy or whatever the language you you want to use. Um, But it's these different frameworks identify the brokenness in a different place, right? The complementarians like Catherine are are saying like the, the brokenness is me not fitting into the role, the script that the gospel story has for me. Um, And the egalitarian would say the world is broken. Of course, we're struggling because our own God-given instincts are not fitting into this broken world, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, these these two stories are are contradictory, but they're both derivative of kind of the Genesis account of creation. Right. Yeah. I found, yeah, I just found that really sad. And here's how a man, this is, this is a man that you interviewed at Southern talked about his headship, even though his wife was working and supporting him while he was in school. So this is, this was a big um, theme that you had in your book is that men or men and women would both navigate how he is the head even when they're not acting out traditional gender roles. So when she's supporting him, when she's the one who's going out working to earn the income so that he can go to school, they're still taking pains to make sure that he is the head and that he feels like the head. Um, and so here's, here's what he said. I have the burden of knowing what's going on with the household. I'll give you a story to illustrate. My wife was in the elevator with some of her coworkers and they were talking about paychecks and stuff. She said, I don't even know how much I make. And they're like, what? 
And she said, my husband takes care of all that. And then they got closer to the bottom and they asked, didn't you bring an umbrella today? And she's like, no, my husband didn't tell me I needed it. So even though she's going to work, there was still a headship there. Yeah, I heard variations on, I think this is the only umbrella story I heard, but variations on this from, from others and the creativity and the work that goes into interpreting these things in, in a way that, that just reassures the couples that they are within the boundaries of male headship just astonishes me. Um, and it, it, I think it shows how symbolic this is. It's not really about who is doing what. It's not as much as it is about maintaining the symbolism of, of the male headship, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sally Gallagher wrote a really interesting work on that, I think back in 2003, um, that we've been, we've been working with a lot as we're writing some um, academic papers. And, and she was looking at how couples navigate this idea of headship. And she, yeah, that's what she basically said. It doesn't actually mean anything like, <laughs> like, like in, in, in practical terms, it just, it, it's like a, a signaling for, hey, we are, we are doing things the Christian way because we're using this language and we're trying to prove that we're within this language, but they don't actually practice yeah. it in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. And it's all part of the story, right? That, that they're, they're, that they're telling. And this is one thing that, that really surprised me that, you know, this is seminary, they're all into theology, especially Southern, you know, systematic theology is a big deal in, in that, in those networks and the students knew systematic theology and they could give me all of the, the nuances of it, but what really compelled them was this overall story that they could fit themselves into and find themselves aligning with. Uh, and they called it the gospel story, which we've, we've already talked about. And so little uh, details of their life, like carrying the umbrella, like eating uh, different kinds of food, the, the campus cafeteria or a little um, kind of sandwich shop had a sandwich called the He-Man sandwich because it was full of meat, right? That had the implication that, you know, they could identify with Adam working the ground as, as they're, you know, writing their papers at, at the, in this, you know, suburban setting, right? So these little details are really like, it's in some ways it's, it's kind of easy to laugh off the umbrella and, and things like that, but it's all, all of these things put together is allowing these religious actors to put themselves into the story of the gospel, the story of the Bible, that is, is really what is codifying all of this belief. So those, those little symbolisms, and they are just symbolic, but they're incredibly important. Yeah. Although I have to say, not knowing how much you make and not knowing anything about the finances, I just need to throw this in there. That is not a safe thing. What if you are in a car accident? What if your husband's in a car accident tomorrow and you don't know where the finances are? Like everybody needs to know how much money you make, where the money is, how much you owe. You need to be able to find your bank statements. Even if the other spouse does the finances, it is not okay for you not to know about it. Okay. Just had to throw that in there. <laughs> And by the way, you can decide <laughs> for yourself if it's going to rain and bring an umbrella. You're a big girl. Okay. Then um, you showed the hoops that they jump through to make a very strong case, or they think they're making a very strong case that they still believe women are equal. Um, yes. It's just different roles. Um, so equal value, different roles. And this formula allows men to denounce misogyny and even claim the language of equality and human flourishing while still owning headship authority in both marriage and church life. I've always found that fascinating how people can argue we're equal, but I make the decisions. I have the authority. I get the final say, and you're not allowed to teach me. Like, how, how is that equal? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. How do they navigate yeah. that? Yeah, this part was so frustrating for me just because it is, it's such a mantra, this equal in value, different in roles. I heard that over and over and over. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's, I think where I started to begin wondering if the story is not about theology, um, if it's more, if, if it's, if there's more to it than that, which of course I ultimately ended up concluding that it, it's about far more than that, because you can't, you can't just say something and make it be true. Like this is what they want to be true, right? It's an mm -hmm. aspirational statement that women are equal in value, but different in roles. It's what they want. Um, but as soon as you start looking at the processes and the practices, as you said, you know, the women are not are not teaching, they are not preaching, they're not leading, they're not speaking in authoritative ways. So clearly, it's not working itself out. Um, but I think I, I and I think so part of your question, I think, is how do they make sense of all of all of those discontinuities? And I think part of it is what we were talking about earlier with the Genesis creation account in the fall, mm -hmm. when they come up, against a something that's not working well or a discontinuity or attention uh there there's actually a very obvious reason why it's because you're not doing it right right the fall makes it hard for us to live up to our manly expectations as men and it makes it hard for women to submit as we're called to and so we just need to do it better Right. So, right. so the blaming of, of the fall for, for the inadequacies. And, and so again, it's, it's a logically, co logically coherent and consistent framework in its theological discursive uh, forms. But there's, yes, again, just there's so much discontinuity with how the, the, the social life and practical uh, realities of culture are working themselves out. Yeah. And I find the whole thing so strange too. Like if you say we're equal and valuable, we have different roles. The thing about the roles that I always think, okay. So in complementarianism, there are things that men can do that women can't, but there are not things that women can do that men can't, unless you count having babies, but that's not a role. That's a function. That's like a biological function. Right. And so it's like, no, it's not actually different roles. It's just restricting mm -hmm. women, but they won't say that. <laughs> They would say, I think that ministering to other women is the role that women can play that men can't, right? Because again, because mm -hmm. of the polarization. Yeah. Um, but yes, I think because headship is a role. Right. For them, right. Yeah. Yeah. I find the whole thing. Yeah. Except that men can write books to women, but women can't write books to men. I was told that when I started writing marriage yes. books is so that you can write a book, but you know, whereas like, you know, how many men, how many men have written marriage books to couples, but women aren't allowed to write marriage books to couples. In fact, like now we're doing it. Now people are buying them and I'm, I'm so happy that men are buying our books. But when, when I started out, that's what publishers told me. So. Wow. Yeah. 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 That's part of the, part of the package. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So tell me about some of the women that you interviewed who were students at Southern who were single mm. and their experience. Cause I, cause they really didn't fit in anywhere. Yeah, they these were some impressive women. I think to get to that point of enrolling at Southern Seminary as a woman, um, they had stories and they had um, some life experiences that made them just really impressive people. Uh, so there were sort of two two different kinds of women that I interviewed. There one. Uh, was in, enrolled in the biblical counseling program, and and this is interesting because it is not a not an accredited counseling program. You can't go out and be in private practice. Uh, the only thing that these women were going to be able to do would be to work in a in a on a church staff 
um, again, of course, under under pastoral authority, which means under um, male headship. Uh, so that was that was kind of the one uh, category of academic program that was really encouraged for women specifically. You can learn to mentor and counsel other women. The other students, the women, and I had to work hard to find these because there were not many of them, but there were some who were enrolled in biblical studies or MDiv, Masters of Divinity programs. They would not seek ordination, uh, but they they could be and were, were welcomed, um, at, at least um, in, in some um in some of the materials uh, to to do that. And so the the ones that were in the MDiv programs were were the ones that were the most interesting to me. Uh, They were so impressive, Sheila. It was was just amazing to meet some of them. And I'm thinking of one in particular that was probably the most impressive student that I met at, at Southern. And I met a lot of students. And she was really navigating a lot uh, because she was just so clearly built to be a leader. And, and I mean, she could have run institutions, uh, but she of course was also within this, the system that told her that biblical womanhood means you get married, you have a family, you serve women through those, those mechanisms, you do the, you know, women's ministry where you paint the pumpkins and, and things like that. And it just did not fit her. Um, and the the one quote that I'll always remember for her is she was talking about her personality and and her her drive. And she said, I've always wondered if maybe just God messed up or if it's my fault that I have this personality because I just have this drive to want to lead things, to make things happen, to do mm-hmm. things. And she she was starting to make sense of it and starting to I think she was the one that was it was talked quite a bit about how she was praying for a husband, praying for someone to lead her and someone who um, because, again, in, in this world, you really need to be married to have the opportunities even to lead in women's ministry. Mm-hmm. It just gives you a, a bit of credibility that that is, is necessary um, so, so really, you know, there's not, there weren't a lot of opportunities open to her and she knew it, but she was really invested. Like she loved the Bible. She loved the new Testament. She was telling me about some of the research that she was doing, um, and just so committed to, to the, the message of the Christian gospel and was, was finding out some really interesting things about women in the new Testament from her own research. Um, and she's one that I wish that I had kept up with. I don't, I don't know what has happened to her in, in the years since where she has landed, but um, there were a few others like her who were, who were single, who just like, couldn't find, they were just so clearly meant for the work of the church and the ministry that they kind of by, by force of gravitational pull, I think landed in these programs and they were, you know, they were trying to, to find a ways to fit in. They also ex- described some frustrations um, dealing with their their male classmates who were, many of them were desperately looking for wives. Um, others were already married and wouldn't talk with them, wouldn't sit beside them in class out of, I think, fear of impropriety or perceptions. Um, and so they were just, these these single women at Southern were just struggling so much. Yeah. You know, um, in our in our focus groups for our book, She Deserves Better, when we looked at women's experiences as teenagers and messages they heard growing up. One of the, one of the subgroups that we identified that we were really surprised about was women, just like this woman that you mentioned, were actually quite likely to marry abusers Mm. because they had been told their whole life, you need to marry someone who's your leader. And when you're already a really big personality, the only way to find someone who's a leader is someone who's bigger than you, which often means marrying a narcissist. 
Wow. And so, so many of these women who you think are so capable and so strong end up in really destructive marriages because they have to find someone who's bigger than them because that's what they've been told being a woman is. And uh, yeah, we heard some heartbreaking stories about that. So I hope she's okay. I hope she's okay. Me too. Me too. Um, Now, the other fascinating thing at Southern, which I really gravitated to was your description of the women's um, events for wives, for students' wives. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So again, in keeping with the polarization, uh, the celebration of women in separate spaces um, from men, Southern has this really well-developed program called the Seminary Wives Institute. And it essentially, it's it's offered at very low cost to the wives of, of male seminarians to make it accessible. It's only, it, it only happens, I think, on Thursday evenings, which is a time when women, you know, hopefully will have, would have some childcare. Uh, maybe their husbands are home to be with the children. And so there are, are sessions that are intended to essentially prepare these women to be Southern Baptist pastors' wives. And that includes, some of the sessions are taught by, by Southern Seminary faculty members who teach, you know, some Baptist history, maybe maybe some uh, New Testament. I, I can't remember exactly what, what those classes are all about. But then there's also this set of classes taught by the wives of seminary professors on things like um, hospitality and and uh, parenting, marriage, uh, evangelism for women, how to sort of host baby showers, how to run a women's ministry, things like that. Um, And these spaces were so interesting. I got to visit several of them. And again, this this is so this is a space where um, women's voices were centered, absolutely centered and celebrated. Uh, the the women who were teaching, who are, who are wives of seminary professors, they were very, very impressive. Mary Moeller, the wife of Al Moeller, is an incredibly impressive woman who easily matches her husband. Uh, and she is the one that has developed this, this program. Uh, so, so the students will go, they take notes, they they learn. and um, But what I found out just in watching is that the real value in these spaces is the, the solidarity, solidarity mm-hmm. that they get from each other, right? Uh, this is the space where they can ask questions uh, that they're uncomfortable, things that they're uncomfortable with, things they're concerned about. Um, I, I heard some of them. So prayer time is often when this comes out, right? There's, there's, you know, the prayer request time that can extend for a long time. And then those, those conversations continue through, through the classroom spaces. Uh, some of the women struggled with, you know, being connected to their husbands during, during seminary, which is a really demanding time in life. Uh, one time a woman talked about how she had, had to be a stay-at-home mom for the first time in her life. I got the sense that she gave up a, a career because her husband came to seminary. Um, and and just I just watched the the flood of empathy and caregiving and nurture that happened in those spaces um, was incredibly valuable, I think, and important to to these women. So it's you know, there's a lot going on in in those spaces. There's not just the sort of preparation for the mm-hmm. domesticity, which I think I, I'm sure is valuable, right? Uh, you know, the, a lot of these, some of them are very, very young women who may or may not know what is expected mm-hmm. of, of pastor's wives. And so I think it's a valuable, a valuable space in that sense too. But I was really struck by the nurture that happens. This is something that I didn't see a lot of in the egalitarian context. A lot of these, th- those women 
we're missing connections with other women. We're missing the nurture that they that they were not getting in their in their classroom spaces. So it's really a mixed bag. But the Seminary Wives Institute was, um, yeah, it was really really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, and I I I, I really related to that. You know, when I was um, a young mom and we moved to a small town where I live now, where I still live, the first way that I got plugged in was going to a women's Bible study, and it was incredible. You know, there were older women there. I got mentored. Um, people realized I was a good speaker. And so even when I was in my late twenties, early thirties, they were having me lead stuff. Like it was, it was very empowering. I made some great relationships, even, even though it was in a complementarian space as well. And that is something that is really valuable, like women getting together and talking, um, and, and having a place where you do have community, especially with older, more experienced women, which we don't always have, uh, in some of these spaces, um, which really brings me to, I think that one of the conclusions that you made in the book, as you looked, and I know we haven't had time to go into, you, we've talked all about what you said about Southern. You said just as much about Asbury, but we don't have time in this podcast to go into it. But I, I highly recommend that you pick up stained glass ceilings. Just your your description of so many of your interviews is so just really, really interesting. Um, and many of you will, will recognize yourself in a lot of these interviews. But one of the things you were saying about, you know, whose view of gender is going to keep going? Like is, is, is going, you know, how, how are these seminaries going to perpetuate their view of gender? How are, what's going to happen in the future? And, and you said like, um, Southern, what Southern has that Asprey doesn't is they're, they're, they're getting their women together in community so that they're in this really strong place so that they can continue what they're doing. But that also has a weakness for complementarians because you've raised this generation of women who know their Bible and who are getting together regularly to study their Bible and who care about each other. And all you need is one or two women in each of those groups to go, wait a minute, this isn't okay. And you have all of these spaces where women hang out that can now become the force for change. And so that while, while Southern has this real strength in how they've codified everything, everything is internally consistent. They also have this big weakness and that women are getting together where men aren't and they're studying the Bible together. And that could actually end up being what brings down their view of gender. Mm -hmm. Yes, they have the tools. They have the yeah. tools. Yeah. 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 And isn't that kind of what happened to Beth Moore? I mean, oh, <laughs> for <know>? sure. <laughs> like, yes. You know, she was trying to stay in her lane. She was trying to stay in her space. But the bigger they got, the more of a threat she became and the more she spoke out against sexism in the church and in politics, you know, the more that she became seen as a threat and, and she was largely pushed out. She didn't leave. She was pushed out. Um, but she brought a lot of those women with her because mm -hmm. there was this group that talked and it was separate from the church service. It was separate from what men control. And uh, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The one barrier though, is that these women are going to have to convince their husbands, right? Yes. Because of the way mm -hmm. this world works, um, they're going to have to be able to convince their husbands. And that is going to be really interesting to see if we start, if we start seeing any of that occurring because there is, I mean, organizationally, it's, it's going to, it's going to be tough. They don't have, 
they they have the tools, but they don't have the resources of the the big institutions. And um, yeah, it's not it's not a given that there mm-hmm. will be change if, through that mechanism. But um, I certainly see the possibility for it. Yeah. And I don't know that there will be widespread change. There will always be a Southern seminary. I'm sure that will always be complementarian, but that doesn't mean that every person that grows up <laughs> in it is going to stay there. And I think that's what right. we're going to see. Oh, for sure. And yeah. I'm, sh- I'm confident that that is already the story of Southern mm-hmm. seminary. I mean, I know um, even some that I have, have interacted with through my, my field work have, have deviated at least in, in some, yeah. in some ways from what they learned there and, and have become activists in some ways against it. So yeah. anytime you have an institution that's, that's um, got such a small circle around its identity, mm-hmm. you're, you're going to have dissenters. Yeah. Interesting. Now, of course yeah. you do, you have a lot of, a lot of lessons for Asprey as well, like how they need to support women a lot more. Like Southern is supporting women, at least in the roles that they're allowed to have, but Asprey really isn't. And yeah. that's the problem in so many egalitarian spaces is you claim that you're gender blind, but then you end up not helping women who actually have a lot of system systemic barriers to success in all kinds of ways, even just like I'm tired and I need a break from the kids, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we don't necessarily have those spaces. So there's a lot to learn um, for Asprey as well. So yes, please take a look at stained glass ceilings. Is there anything else that you really want that you really learned from this um, experience or something that you're still mulling over that you want to share with people? Hmm. Well, I am still mulling over a lot <laughs> coming out of this. Um, I think I am just really sitting with the the importance of understanding communities, not only through their theological frameworks. There's just so much more to us as as humans and as religious actors than than our beliefs and the ways that we think the world should work out. And I think it's just been really humbling for me as both a sociologist and as a person of faith to to try to separate those and also try to figure out how they how they come back together and and you you mentioned even the the revival that took place at my my the college where i work i think we as a community are are grappling with those those differences too the social realities are separate from but also connected to the spiritual realities and theological realities. So I think that as as a as a western church I think we have a lot of work to do to understand ourselves, to understand our ethics and understand um just how constrained we are by the cultures that are are around us especially when it comes to some of these gender hierarchies that we've been talking about. So um but I'm also incredibly hopeful. I, I, for me and maybe this is just the sociologist in me but once I see the patterns and see where things are going wrong, it's an opportunity to to yeah. repent and fix and to do better. And so I think Identifying some of these patterns, hopefully, um, hopefully con- conversations will will continue along these lines, and and we can all work together collaboratively to to imagine a better future for the church. Yeah, amen. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, thank you. What is next for you? What project are you working on now? Ooh. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, several things, actually, but the biggest one is I'm working on a transnational project that looks at human trafficking in Southeast Asia, Ooh, the especially uh-huh. the the American religious response to it. Oh. Um, and there's some really fascinating gender stuff in there, too. There's also a lot of, of just looking at 
um, our ideas as Western Christians about how to help the, help others and and how uh, some of our social justice activism has taken shape over time. So I've been, been oh my goodness, that's times, so fascinating. Oh, it has been a great project. I need to come to wherever you are. Where are you? Are you? In, I'm in Kentucky. Kentucky. In Kentucky. I need to come to Kentucky yeah. and have a coffee with you sometime. Oh, I would love that. You are welcome anytime, yeah. Sheila. Well, yeah. thank you so much for um for for uh, spending time with us today. Where can people find you? So I am on social media, kind of limited presence on on Instagram and Facebook and and a little bit on Twitter as just Lisa Weaver Swartz. Pretty easy to find there. Uh, website is lisaweaverswartz.com. So you can find me there too. Okay. And I will put links to that and to the stained glass ceiling. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sheila. This has been great. I so appreciated um, our conversation and uh, I invite you to check out the book. Again, there's a link in our podcast notes and thank you to Lisa for coming on. Um, before we go, I just wanted to read some of the more recent reviews that came that have come in on Amazon for She Deserves Better. So I just pulled it up on my computer um, and I will read this one spot on and it couldn't have come at a better time. If you've ever struggled in a church environment and wondered why it's okay for male and female leadership to treat you like trash for speaking up against abuse, this is the book for you. I was shunned. I was treated like repeatedly being assaulted was my fault for not meeting biblical dress code and behavior standards for women because I spoke my mind and wore crew neck t-shirts and loose fitting Carhartt pants. After all, if I would just shut up, submit and wear ankle length cumbersome skirts like every woman in the congregation seemed to enjoy doing, it wouldn't have happened. I'm still in the thick of it. If you're reading this, please pray for me as I try to navigate this mess and present my case and build on the foundation I learned and she deserves better. If you're tired of wondering if you really are somehow less than everyone else and that maybe Jesus sees you this way too, it's time to break free. I would recommend this book to anyone who's questioning the toxic teachings that have been shoved down their throats by the church. You're not radical for thinking there's something wrong. You're not crazy. And you're not the only one who's noticed there's a problem. I love that because that, that's really what we're trying to do in this movement is we're trying to help people see you are not alone. There are so many people who feel this way. And even though you may feel alone in your church, there's actually a huge army of us out there who are realizing the stuff the church is teaching looks nothing like Jesus right now. And we need to do better. We need to do better. The church needs to do better. Um, and I believe the church can, you know, I've landed in a really healthy church. Rebecca's landed in a really healthy church. Like we're, we're in good places. As Nagma Panahi said on a recent, um, bare marriage podcast, God is building the church on broken women. And a lot of us have been broken. You know, some of us went to seminaries like the ones that that Lisa was talking about that broke us down and made us feel like we weren't enough because we were women. But the, that's not the voice of Jesus. And I think Jesus's voice is coming through loud and clear in this culture because this is a time of change when God is, is shaking the church. And I'm excited to see where the church is going to end up. So thank you for joining us. And we'll see you again next time on the Bear Marriage Podcast. Bye bye. <laughs>